So, um, this evening we come to the fifth chapter of the Vimalakirti Nadesha. And if you haven't been with us so far, you'll just have to catch up somehow. And you can catch up, um, not this evening, but over the next few days if you want to, by going on to the Manchester Buddhist Centre website. Um, if you go on to Sangha Nights and you follow through, it takes you to a, the pages talk, uh, the talks page. And um, my talks and the readings are all on that page if you want to catch up the last few weeks and the chapters. Um, before I begin though, um, this is the last of a four week series on the Vimalakirti Nadesha. There's obviously much more we could do. We won't, we'll finish chapter five this evening. Um, and there are 12 or 13 chapters altogether, depending on how you count them. Um, how many of you would like to continue exploring the sutra or do you feel that that's enough for you for the time being? Put your hands up if you'd like this to continue. Two hands over there. Okay. And hands up if you prefer to move on to something else. You've had enough of this. Okay. Okay, so um, we come to a very important chapter now. Um, in a way, up to now, it's all been introductory. Um, first chapter, we met the Buddha in Amrapali's park. Second chapter, we met Vimalakirti in bed, uh, ill, or at least pretending to be ill as a skillful means. So we were introduced to the idea of skillful means. Um, and then third and fourth chapters uh, consist of flashbacks into the past where various great monks, uh, arahants, enlightened monks, have met Vimalakirti, or at least Vimalakirti has met them. He's gone searching for them uh, in the middle of doing something like meditating or teaching the Dharma, and Vimalakirti has pointed out the limitations of what they're doing, the way they understand what they're doing. Then in the next chapter, he does the same with bodhisattvas. And I was saying that that is really extraordinary that he, he would do that with bodhisattvas too. But um, he pointed out the limitations of what they were doing too. So we had two of those stories uh, two weeks ago. So this evening, we come to chapter five and it's one of the most important, possibly the most important chapter in this text. Um, it's a very, very important um, section in the whole Mahayana generally, I would say, extremely important. Um, and here, the Buddha and Vimalakirti continue with what they were doing uh, in the last couple of chapters, which is Vimalakirti is lying in bed ill, or at least seemingly ill, and he has a thought. Here I am lying in bed, ill, in pain, and the Buddha doesn't send anybody to inquire after my illness. And the Buddha reads that thought. And so now he joins in Vimalakirti's game of skillful means. He's, he asks many people, monks and arahants, bodhisattvas, to go and visit Vimalakirti. And Whenever he asks them, 
they say, no, I'm not able, I'm not capable of going to meet Vimlakirti. And then they each tell their story, which is the flashbacks. So when we come to chapter five, the Buddha has asked 10 of his chief disciples and four bodhisattvas, and all of them have said, no, they don't want to have that experience again. I don't want to go and see Vimlakirti. This leads us up to chapter five, because in chapter five, the Buddha asks Manjushri to go to see Vimlakirti. So I just want to say a little bit about Manjushri. Manjushri is one of the great bodhisattvas in Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, he's what we call um, uh, an archetypal bodhisattva. That's to say, he's not a historical figure. He's one of those figures um, who is a symbol of a certain aspect of enlightenment. So you get Avalokiteshvara. In the other shrine room, you've got that thousand-armed figure, haven't you? thousand arm and eleven heads. That's Avalokiteshvara. He is the Bodhisattva of compassion. He never actually existed, but he symbolises compassion, hence the thousand arms going out helping people and the eleven heads looking in every direction. So he's the great Bodhisattva of compassion. And you get Bodhisattvas representing different aspects of the enlightened mind. And Manjushri represents wisdom. So he is the Bodhisattva who represents the great wisdom of the Buddha. So now the Buddha asks Manjushri to go and see Vimalakirti. And Manjushri is the first one to say, okay, I'll do it. And so then this is where we begin with this evening's reading. Have you ever seen pictures of Manjushri? Okay, so Manjushri, like all Bodhisattvas, is young. Uh, he's 16 years old, which in Indian, in the Indian mind, Indian mythology, is the perfect age. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. So the idea of the Bodhisattvas is they are enlightened, but they're young, which never happens, does it, in real life. You don't get a 16-year-old person gaining enlightenment, at least not very often. Usually enlightened beings are rather old and wizened and they've been practicing for donkey's years and it looks like that. You know, they look really um, perhaps even worn out. Uh, but Manjushri isn't like that. He's absolutely <coughs> stunningly beautiful. He's dressed as a prince. Princely robes, uh, a kind of tiara type crown on his head, long blue-black hair, absolutely beautiful hair coming down over his shoulders. He wields a sword over his head. The sword is the sword of wisdom cutting through uh, ignorance. And he holds at his heart the perfection of wisdom texts. So at his heart, the perfection of wisdom, not, not at his head, but at his heart, meaning he really knows them. So, quick introduction to Manjushri there. Absolutely beautiful young man, but wise as anything extremely wise, the wisdom of enlightenment. He goes to see Man, uh, Vimlakirti. So um, this scene, Vimlakirti in Manjushri, has been painted and sculpted so often in China and pro probably Japan as well. I wanted to show slides of it this evening but 
because I'm so late, we haven't got time to look at those. But um, if we continue with this theme, I'll, I'll show you them another time. But they are wonderful um, paintings and sculptures of um, Manjushri on one side, on his bed, kind of relaxing on his bed. His little boots, remember his little boots at the bottom? And uh, Manjushri with thousands of beings, because when he says he'll go, everyone wants to go with him. So everyone in Amrapali's park, and do you remember how many there were? Thousands and thousands. They all come along with him. They all want to watch this meeting. It's like the big fight, in a way, um, <laughs> that everyone's been waiting for, the big fight. Here we are, Vimalakirti, this incredible figure, but old, wizened, um, balding, but long hair coming down, uh, as this is how he's normally depicted in uh, Japanese and Chinese art beard, one of those wispy Chinese type beards, you know, coming down like this. Um, he's a householder and Manjushri opposite him, young, beautiful. Who is going to win? Yeah, that's the question. So Are you ready? Unfortunately, because um, I am late, <coughs> we were going to do this as a duet, myself and Fridayamani. Fridayamani was going to read the part of Manjushri, and I was going to read the part of Vimalakirti. But I'm late and he has to go, so we probably won't be able to do that. Um, would you like to do it? Yeah. You'll need to come and sit beside me. Um, it's okay, I've got one. Yeah, thank you, yeah. Um, because I'll, I'll, we'll have to hand the microphone from one to the other. <laughs> so, on this occasion, Manju Shri has a Yorkshire accent. So whenever it's Manjushri's turn to speak, I'll hand over to you. And apologies to you, Vidayamani. I know you're really looking forward to this. Uh, I'm really glad you found a substitute. So if you can try to remember everything I've said before about listening to these texts, um, this is a spiritual practice. Much like the spiritual practice you did earlier with Arimati, much like doing the Metta Bhavna, this is a similar spiritual practice. It requires the same degree of concentration, commitment, patience, receptivity. Same kind of effort. And um, some of these teachings will be difficult. Some of them are easy to understand, some are rather difficult to understand, especially the dialogue between Manjushri and Vimalakirti, because they are very, very wise. So 
some of it may just go straight over your head. That's okay. If you just really listen, it will have an effect on you. doesn't matter if you understand it conceptually or not. In fact, I'd be surprised if you did understand all of it conceptually. Um, but you'll kind of catch a glimpse of enlightenment. You'll catch a glimpse of real wisdom. It's like when you're watching two people who really know their topic talking about something. They really know their topic. They're at great ease talking about it. And it's really lovely to listen to, but you couldn't follow it all because to follow it, you'd have to know the topic as well as the two people. So if you think of it in those terms. So let's just settle down, have a short meditation to begin, to prepare ourselves for chapter five, which is called The Consolation of the Invalid. Maybe I should say there's something in there that is a bit technical. Vimalakirti and Manjushri at some point talk about the 62 wrong views. And I don't know if you remember me saying a few weeks back that it's understood when you read these kind of texts that you know your Buddhism, you know the Pali Canon. And the first chapter, the first sutta in the Diganikaya, the long sayings of the Buddha, there the Buddha goes into the 62 wrong views. Yeah, so they're mentioned. So it's a hark back to the Buddha's teaching there. Chapter 5 The Consolation of the Invalid Then the Buddha said to the Crown Prince Manjushri Manjushri, go to the Lichavivimlikirti to inquire about his illness. Manjushri replied Lord it is difficult to attend upon the Lichavi Vimlakirti. He is gifted with marvellous eloquence concerning the law of the profound. He is extremely skilled in full expressions 
and then, and then the reconciliation of dichotomies. His eloquence is inexorable, and no one can resist his imperturbable intellect. He accomplishes all the activities of the bodhisattvas. He penetrates all the secret mysteries of the bodhisattvas and the buddhas. He is skilled in civilizing all the abodes of maras. He plays with the great supernologies. He is consummate in wisdom and skillful means. He has attained the supreme excellence of the indivisible, non-dual sphere of the ultimate realm. He is skilled in teaching the Dharma with its infinite modalities within the uniform ultimate. He is skilled in granting means of attainment in accordance with the spiritual faculties of all living beings. He has thoroughly integrated his realization with skillful means. He possesses the answer to all questions. Thus, although he cannot be withstood by someone of my feeble defenses, still, sustained by the grace of the Buddha, I will go to him and will converse with him as well as I can. Thereupon, in that assembly, the Bodhisattvas, the great disciples, the Chakras, the Brahmas, the Lokapalas, the gods and goddesses all had this thought. Surely, the conversations of the young prince Manjushri and that good man will result in a profound teaching of the Dhamma. Thus, 8,000 Bodhisattvas, 500 disciples, a great number of Chakras, Brahmas, Lokapalas, and many hundreds of thousands of gods and goddesses, all followed the Crown Prince Manjushri to listen to the Dhamma. And the Crown Prince Manjushri, surrounded and followed by these Bodhisattvas, disciples, Chakras, Brahmas, Lokapalas, gods and goddesses, entered the great city of Vaishali. Meanwhile, the Lichavi Vimalakirti thought to himself, Manjushri, the crown prince, is coming here with numerous attendants. Now, may this house be transformed into emptiness. Then, magically, his house became empty. Even the doorkeeper disappeared. And except for the invalid's couch, upon which... Vimalakirti himself was lying, no bed or couch or seat could be seen anywhere. Then, the Lichavi Vimalakirti saw the Crown Prince Manjushri and addressed him thus, Manjushri, welcome Manjushri, you are very welcome. There you are, without any coming. You appear, without any seeing. You are heard without any hearing. And Manjushri declared, Householder, it is as you say. Who comes, finally comes not. Who goes, finally goes not. Why? Who comes is not known to come. Who goes is not known to go. 
who appears is finally not to be seen. Good sir, is your condition tolerable? Is it livable? Are your physical elements not disturbed? Is your sickness diminishing? Is it not increasing? The Buddha asks after you. If you have slight trouble, slight discomfort, slight sickness, if your distress is light, if you are cared for, strong, at ease, without self-reproach, and if you are living in touch with the supreme happiness. Householder, whence came this sickness of yours? How long will it continue? How does it stand? How can it be alleviated? Manjushri, my sickness comes from ignorance and the thirst for existence and it will last as long as do the sicknesses of all living beings. Were all living beings to be free from sickness, I also would not be sick. Why? Manjushri, for the Bodhisattva, the world consists only of living beings, and sickness is inherent in living in the world. Were all living beings free of sickness, the Bodhisattva also would be free of sickness. For example, Manjushri, when the only son of a merchant is sick, both his parents become sick on account of the sickness of their son, and the parents will suffer as long as that only son does not recover from his sickness. Just so, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva loves all living beings as if each were his only child. He becomes sick when they are sick, and is cured when they are cured. You ask me, Manjushri, whence comes my sickness? The sicknesses of the Bodhisattvas arise from great compassion. Householder, why is your house empty? Why have you no servants? Manjushri, all Buddha fields are also empty. What makes them empty? They are empty because of emptiness. What is empty about emptiness? Constructions are empty because of emptiness. Can emptiness be conceptually constructed? Even that concept is itself empty, and emptiness cannot construct emptiness. Householder, where should emptiness be sought? Manjushri, emptiness should be sought among the 62 wrong views. Where should the 62 wrong views be sought? They should be sought in the liberation of the Tathagatas. Where should the liberation of the Tathagatas be sought? It should be sought in the minds and actions of all living beings. Manjushri, you ask me why I am without servants. But all Maras and opponents are my servants. Why? The Maras delight in the realm of birth and death. And while the Bodhisattva is in the realm of birth and death, he does not scorn their company. The heterodox opponents advocate wrong views, and the Bodhisattva is not troubled by wrong views. Therefore, all Maras and opponents are my servants. Householder, of what sort is your sickness? 
It is formless and indivisible. Is it physical or mental? It is not physical, since the body is insubstantial in itself. It is not mental, since the nature of the mind is like illusion. Householder, which of the four main elements is disturbed? Earth, water, fire or air? Manjushri, I am sick only because the elements of living beings are disturbed by sicknesses. Householder, how should a bodhisattva console another bodhisattva who is sick? He should tell him that the body is impermanent, but should not exhort him to renunciation or disgust. He should tell him that the body is painful, but should not encourage him to delight in nirvana. That the body is selfless, but that living beings should be developed. That the body is peaceful, but not to seek any ultimate calm. He should urge him to repent of former offences, but do not tell him to consign them to the past. He should encourage his empathy for all living beings on account of his own sickness. His remembrance of suffering experienced from beginningless time and his consciousness of working for the welfare of living beings. He should encourage him not to be distressed but to manifest the roots of virtue, to maintain purity and the lack of craving and thus to always strive to become the king of healers who can cure all sicknesses. Thus should a bodhisattva console a sick bodhisattva in such a way as to make him happy. Noble sir, how should a sick bodhisattva control his own mind? Manjushri, a sick bodhisattva should control his own mind with the following consideration. Sickness arises from total involvement in the process of misunderstanding from beginningless time. It arises from the passions that result from unreal mental constructions and hence ultimately nothing is perceived which can be said to be sick. Why? The body is the issue of the four main elements and in these elements there is no owner and no agent. There is no self in this body and except for arbitrary insistence on self Ultimately, no I, which can be said to be sick, can be apprehended. Therefore, thinking I should not adhere to any self, and I should rest in the knowledge of the root of illness, he should abandon the conception of himself as a self, and produce the conception of himself as a thing, thinking. This body is an aggregate of many things. When it is born, only things are born. When it ceases, only things cease. These things have no awareness or feeling of each other. When they are born, they do not think, I am born. When they cease, they do not think, I cease. Furthermore, he should understand thoroughly the conception of himself as a thing by cultivating the following consideration. Just as, 
in the case of the conception of self, so the conception of thing is also a misunderstanding, and this misunderstanding is also a grave sickness. I should free myself from this sickness and should strive to abandon it. What is the elimination of this sickness? It is the elimination of egoism and possessiveness. What is the elimination of egoism and possessiveness? It is the freedom from dualism. What is freedom from dualism? It is the absence of involvement with either the external or the internal. What is absence of involvement with either external or internal? It is non-deviation, non-fluctuation and non-distraction from equanimity. What is equanimity? It is the equality of everything from self to liberation. Why? Because both self and liberation are empty. How can both be empty? As verbal designations, they are both empty, and neither is established in reality. Therefore, one who sees such equality makes no difference between sickness and emptiness. His sickness is itself emptiness. And that sickness as emptiness is itself empty. The sick bodhisattva should recognise that sensation is ultimately non-sensation. But he should not realise the cessation of sensation. Although both pleasure and pain are abandoned when the Buddha qualities are fully accomplished, there is then no sacrifice of the great compassion for all living beings living in the bad migrations. Thus, recognising in his own suffering the infinite sufferings of these living beings, the Bodhisattva correctly contemplates these living beings and resolves to cure all sicknesses. As for these living beings, there is nothing to be applied and there is nothing to be removed. One has only to teach them the Dharma for them to realise the basis from which sicknesses arise. What is this basis? It is object perception. Insofar as apparent objects are perceived, they are the basis of sickness. What things are perceived as objects? The three realms of existence are perceived as objects. What is the thorough understanding of the basic, apparent object? It is its non-perception, as no objects exist ultimately. What is non-perception? The internal subject and the external object are not perceived dualistically. Therefore, 
It is called non-perception. Manjushri. Thus, should a sick bodhisattva control his own mind in order to overcome old age, sickness, death and birth? Such, Manjushri, is the sickness of the bodhisattva. If he takes it otherwise, all his efforts will be in vain. When Vimlakirti had spoken this discourse, 8,000 of the gods in the company of the Crown Prince Manjushri conceived the spirit of unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. Okay, so did you get that? (laughs) As I said earlier, it's a very, very important passage, that in the Mahayana, quoted many, many times. Um, Let me just say a few words about it. Um, So you remember that in the second um, chapter, we were introduced to Vimlakirti, who's lying sick, in bed in the centre of, or somewhere in the city of Vaishali. And uh, he remains in bed throughout the rest of the text. Um, and what happens is people go to him. So that's his skillful means to pretend to be ill so people come to see him and so he can teach the Dharma. So this is the beginning of his skillful means. This is the beginning of the whole thing. And as I say, it's this great meeting between Manjushri and Vimlakirti, and a lot of the rest of the text is a dialogue between those two, which is hard to understand. Um, so let's just go into some of it here. Um, first of all, there's the meeting of the two, isn't there? And that's a celebrated opening dialogue. Let me just read it again to you. Vimalakirti sees Manjushri and he says, Manjushri, welcome, Manjushri. You are very welcome. There you are without any coming. You appear without any seeing. You are heard without any hearing. And Manjushri replies, Householder, it is as you say. Who comes, finally comes not. Who goes, finally goes not. Who comes is not known to come. Who goes is not known to go. Who appears is finally not to be seen. So, have you got any idea what that means? Anybody? Yeah, it's exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, eventually you are going to be off this planet, so looking in the future, but even now, uh, it's as you say, it's the. Um, There is, there is, the, the point of the dialogue is that there is no self. Yeah. So no self can be apprehended. So when we think that we are a self, when we understand ourselves, conceive of experience as having self as its centre, and when we look out at the world and see other selves out there, according to Buddhism, that is an illusion. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, so it would have left different anyway, wouldn't it? After hmm? the conversation, it would have left different anyway. Even in that half an hour of that The Buddha? No, Manjushri and... Uh, left a different person. Yes, anyway, indeed, yeah. So that's what all that's aiming at, the fact that even though conventionally speaking, remember I talked about the conventional truth and, or the relative truth, which is the truth of things and people, and then there's the ultimate truth, which is that in reality there are no things and there are no people. What is there then? There's just process, constant fluidity of flux process. That's what the world is really made up of. And so um, these two are talking, they're sort of playing with these two truths. Welcome. You're very welcome. Um, there you are without any coming. So on the relative truth, the conventional truth, there you are, you're here. I can see you. The, the absolute or the ultimate truth, there is no being to be seen. Yeah. So that's what all that's about. Yeah. And so it goes on a little bit like this. But um, Manjushri kind of seems like he doesn't really want to get into all this. I mean, he's used to this kind of repartee. And he says he, he wants to talk about what he's come for, which is to ask after Vimlakirti's illness. Good sir, is your condition tolerable? Is it livable? Etc. Etc. In other words, how are you? How are you doing with your illness? And Manjushu's reply is so famous in Mahayana Buddhism. It is so famous. It's one of the most famous passages you'll ever come across. Manjushri, my sickness comes from ignorance and the thirst for existence, and it will last as long as do the sicknesses of all living beings. Yeah, that's why he's in bed for the rest of the text. He doesn't get better. He's not going to get better because beings are always going to be sick. So what's that mean? What's sickness? Delusion. Suffering and delusion. Yeah, the suffering of delusion, the delusion of suffering. It's dukkha. Yeah. So uh, Vimalakirti's sickness here is a metaphor for the general teaching of dukkha and ignorance. Yeah, the, the, the suffering that comes out of ignorance. Ignorance of what? The way in which the world is. And craving. Craving and... The sense of self, the sense of things and selfhood really being, you know, substantial, rather than just being conventions. We think they actually do exist. Yeah, the the idea that things are permanent and substantial, out of that basic misunderstanding comes all of our suffering. That's the basic message. And. The Bodhisattva traditionally puts off his or her enlightenment. Yeah, they could gain enlightenment, but they decide not to. To stay in the world with sick beings. So Vimalakirti's sickness, and he'll remain sick as long as all beings are sick. 
symbolises the fact that we're not trying to gain enlightenment for ourselves alone. That we're trying to gain enlightenment, but only because it's going to help all beings. So, in, a, in other words, this kind of identification, isn't it? You identify with other beings suffering. So probably uh, Vimalakirti doesn't suffer all that much, doesn't suffer nearly the amount that we do. I mean, we really do suffer, don't we? Uh, in many different ways. And Vimalakirti is very highly advanced Bodhisattva, so he won't suffer in the way that we do. But he knows that we suffer, so he sticks around to help us in our suffering. That's what a Bodhisattva does. that's that bit and then there's this wonderful dialogue I love this dialogue I mean not that I fully understand it householder why is your house empty why have you no servant so this is this is very very interesting because you know a few weeks ago we saw that Vimalakirti was a wealthy layman with servants um, big house probably because he was wealthy servants wife and children, and all the accoutrements that go with that. So there he is, lying in this house, with a servant. Manjushri comes along with all these beings, and Vimalakirti transforms his house into emptiness. Yeah, yeah. Emptiness, shunyata. Yeah, shunya, mean, shunya means zero. So, zero-ness. Uh, what's emptiness? Shunyata, what, what's Shunyata emptiness? Another way of putting it? Voidness. Voidness. Yes. Yeah. There are no things. There are no things. So emptiness equals no thingness. It's empty of things, empty of self. So he transforms his house into emptiness. Now, of course, his house is already empty, as everything is empty. He doesn't need to transform anything. But what, what can that mean? If his house is already empty, just as this room is empty, how can he transform it into emptiness? Even emptiness has got an emptiness about it. I'm on the right track. The void is empty. The Dharma is empty. Yeah, but it's empty already, so there's no real need for him to transform it into emptiness because it's already empty. So why does he do that? Well, it symbolises him realising emptiness, the emptiness of it. Yeah. This thing that the world is empty, isn't it, but we don't yeah. realise it. That's right, that's right. So Vimalakirti's house is a very interesting theme that runs through the whole book. And I'll, if we continue with this theme, I'll go into his house at some point, what his house is. But very, very briefly, we could say that his house is him. His house is his consciousness. And he has realised emptiness. He only appears to have a house, yeah? It's all appearance. He appears to have a house. He appears to be celibate, remember? He appears to have a wife and child. He appears to have servants. But actually, they're all empty. So when Manjushri comes along, he sees him as he really is, with absolutely nothing. I love that, because uh, the Buddha, in one of the very early texts of uh, 
the Pali Canon. The Buddha was uh, referred to as the man of nothing, the man of naught, the man who has got absolutely nothing, yeah? Doesn't own anything at all, possessionless. And Vimalakirti is like that, even though he appears to have this house and wealth and so on, he had, nothing of it's his, and he knows that. So when all these beings come along, he shows himself as what he really is. So he's just there, kind of in midair, in mid-space, lying on this couch now. Yeah? <laughs> That's how he can get all these beings into his house, because it's empty. Yeah. So it's wonderful that, isn't it? That's right. Anything, yeah. That's right. Yes. If you realise that you've got anything, then that's great. Yeah. 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 And then there's this all this stuff about emptiness and the emptiness of emptiness, but we don't need to go into that. Um, and then he comes back again to this idea of sickness. So although there's this very Oh, um, intellectually difficult idea of emptiness and emptiness of the self, emptiness of things and so on. Every now and then he ta talks again about sickness. And the sickness, remember, is dukkha. It's the, the suffering arises out of ignorance. And the ignorance is the belief that things and selves really exist. Yeah. So you've got these two things going on. This very rarefied conversation about emptiness, and then every now and then coming right back to earth and talking about suffering. And the reason for our suffering is because people don't realise emptiness. Furthermore, Vimalakirti says, he, the Bodhisattva, or she, should understand thoroughly the conception of himself as a thing by cultivating the following consideration. Just as in the case, case of the conception of self, so the conception of thing is also a misunderstanding. And this misunderstanding is also a grave sickness. A grave sickness. So not they seem to be playing, but there's a lot at stake here, yeah? It's a grave sickness. I should free myself from this sickness and should strive to abandon it. What is the elimination of this sickness? It is the elimination of egoism and possessiveness. This is crucial, absolutely crucial to our happiness, yeah? It's the elimination of egoism and possessiveness. What is the elimination of egoism and possessiveness? It is the freedom from dualism. Dualism being me and you, because there isn't a me and there isn't a you. So the idea of me and you is dualistic and it's a grave sickness. And the idea of me and things that I can possess. Um, the original Sanskrit for this is uh, grahya and grahaka, the grasper and the grasped, yeah, grasper and grasped. That whole idea 
is a misunderstanding of the way things are. What is freedom from dualism? It is the absence of involvement with either the external or the internal. What is the absence of involvement with either external or internal? It goes into equanimity. What is equanimity? It's the equality of everything from self to liberation. Now I'm looking for something. I'm looking for the... I must have gone on beyond it. I can't find it. There's something about object perception, isn't there? Do you remember that? Yeah. Let me see if I can find it. Yes, yeah, in the, uh, the longest, last uh, page. Oh, is it? Ah, oh, yeah. Right. As for these living beings, there is nothing to be applied and there is nothing to be removed. One has only to teach them the Dharma for them to realise the basis from which sickness arises. What is this basis? It is object perception. Yeah? So perceiving things as being separate objects. Yeah? That's the basis of our sickness. Insofar as apparent objects are perceived, they are the basis of sickness. What things are perceived as objects? The three realms of existence. In other words, absolutely everything. Everything out there is perceived as objects. It's very interesting, isn't it, that language uh, is very much part of this whole sickness. So if you look around this room, there is not one thing in here that doesn't have a label, doesn't have a name. Yeah. What's this? It's a pole. What's that? It's a floor. What's this? Yeah. There's nothing here that doesn't have a label. And when we label things, we objectify them. We make them separate. So we can't help thinking as this as being somehow inherently existing apart from us, don't we? There it is. Can touch it, can make it ring. Therefore, it's a thing. Uh, but it's not a thing in the way that we think it is. And this is the basic sickness of living beings. Because we think that this really is a thing, all our dukkha, all our suffering comes from that idea. You want? Well, usually we either want to possess or we want to get rid of. Those are the two bait we either grasp or we yes. push away. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the case with all objects. You might not particularly want to possess this, but there are things out there that you do want to possess. And you only want to possess them because you've got a basic misunderstanding that they are things that can be possessed. Yeah. So object perception leads to possessiveness leads to dukkha. I think that will do for one evening, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Bit clearer now? Yeah. Yeah. 
So we can understand these texts. It takes a little bit of work on it. And also, sometimes translations get in the way of understanding. You don't quite understand what they're on about. But, um, you know, with a little bit of study, you can understand even these very rarefied teachings. Mm. And the idea, of course, is to make us feel just a bit freer, a bit less grasping. So instead of that, a bit more like that with our hands. Yeah. Something I've noticed in Buddhist art, um, hands are nearly always open. The Buddha's grasping uh, the lotus there, but he's not grasping like that. It's very open hand, isn't it, like that. There's only one uh, Chinese or Japanese bodhisattva that's grasping. There's one that's grasping his middle finger like that. Um, and there is a reason for that, and I did know it once, but I can't remember anymore. But you sh- Yeah, Verochina. Yeah. I did read it a little while ago, but it didn't remain in my mind. But apart from that one, usually the hands are open, giving mudra, fearless mudra, even when they're holding something, even the teaching mudra, the, hand, the palm is open. They're not grasping. So the whole point, in a way, of that whole text is to allow us to do that rather than that. Very simple. 